Welcome to the Trowers and Hamlin Smart Cities podcast. This episode will discuss harnessing data in a smart city. I'm Amadeep Gill, and I have the pleasure of being joined by William Taff. William is a highly knowledgeable data professional, having worked with a number of hardware and software providers over the last decade. Welcome, William. Thank you for having me. To kick off the conversation, um, in the context of smart cities, data really lies at the heart of them. Mm. What do you think is currently preventing effective exploitation of that data? This is quite a varied answer, right? It's quite yeah. a broad thing that we're looking at. So first of all, I love the word etymology, yeah. which is the study of words and the meaning of them, right? And I've had kickback already over, over the question here, where how it's phrased, the exploitation of data. Yeah. Is that the right word that we should be using when we talk about how we're going to collect and use and, and benefit from a smart city and from that data stream? It's a funny one, right? Because in many ways, I think exploitation actually may be apt because essentially, what are we looking to do with it? What is, what is the purpose of a smart city? I think that's the first thing that we have to define. So from your perspective, where, where, do, you think, where, where do you think that lies? With? So for me, smart cities are an environment in which we are optimising um, city living. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you live in a city, you work in a city, you have rec- recreational time in a city, mm. it's about making it an as effective experience for you and the environment. Mm-hmm. So harnessing everything that is around you to make things as streamlined and as effective as possible. Yeah. And William, the big thing for, for looking at it in terms of population growth and uh, resource requirements mm-hmm. is making sure that cities don't leave the massive footprint that they necessarily do in terms of waste and energy consumption and optimising all of that. So I I think when I think about smart cities, it's optimising every single element of it at every layer. I think it's you can divide it there, which you've just done, into people, state, and commercial, mm. right? And that's how we have to think about it, because those are the, all different facets of how a city runs. So I've jotted down a few things. I thought the point of a smart city to provide a better standard of living to public citizens and visitors. Yeah, that's right? good. And by doing that, how can how can the the state provide a better level of service around public services? So yeah. we're all taxpayers. We pay money into a pot. How can we get more out of it? And that can be split into to the quality of the public service that's being offered, but also yeah. the accountability of that, because we can track and measure things more effectively by using the data. The, the evidence is always there in the data. It's just how we how we blend it and how we understand the relation and the causality between different data types in providing a level of service. And then I thought, actually, what are we trying to build towards? So if we have a smart city here in Birmingham, and that becomes the model and map for the UK, then eventually logic dictates that every city will eventually become a smart city. And with a country full of smart cities, we become a smart country. And then if we're thinking about globalisation and some of the more, the the bigger questions that you ask there about cutting waste, about cutting energy, about being more efficient, right? There's a global reason for that, right? We know that we're onto a hiding if we don't do anything, right? All of the scientific reports that President Trump denies, but is is evidence out there anyway, dictates that we need to change our behaviour patterns if we're going to ensure a positive future for the human race. So we have to think as a global on a scale and this is where the, the, it becomes challenging because what a smart city that Birmingham might look like is not necessarily what a smart city might look like to China Absolutely. or the Far East or America or, or other nations around the world. So 
it, it, it varies in the meaning for it. But what I thought, which was really interesting, right, is it's a brain that shows the causality of this, right? Yeah. Because if we think about current infrastructure, we know, for instance, that Birmingham has a problem with air pollution. Yeah. We know that we need to lower those emissions. We can understand at any given time, on any given street, that the air pollution in that area on that day in that week was at a certain level. But do we understand the causality of what caused it to be at that level? And for me, this is where a smart city comes into its own, because it's combining so many varied data sources from lots of different things that we didn't necessarily were able to draw the causality between them. We could speculate, which is what we have done, and scientific reports are full of speculation, but can we actually hone in and see the relationship between different services that we're doing in the world and the impact that they're having combined in a combined fashion in that one area? Yeah. Because if we can understand that, we can start to change things. So if we're going to think about what's preventing exploitation of data, which was the question yeah, that we go back to, we have to understand that there are lots of different stakeholders here from lots of different areas. And there's lots of different types of data. I worked in data security previously. Now I work in intelligence around collecting that data and using that through our systems to create something as an intelligent output, which integrates lots of different data types to form an answer. And I think that half of this battle is understanding the ownership of the data. Actually, who owns it? What, what, to what level is it personal data? To what level is actually, is it your ownership? But I, but I looked at it and I devised it a bit like this, right? Personal data you own. Yeah. You're in charge of that, right? Operational data, that might be your bus timetables, your trams. It might be infrastructure around the city, right? The, the local authorities provide that service generally. And then that's part of the devolution from central government. Yeah. You've got police data which is government authorities. And, and police data is one of these ones that puts a bit of a question mark on because could that infringe on the personal argument? Absolutely. You've got government data, and I categorise that as national security, your census, socio-demographic, your employment rates, town yeah. planning. Um, and, and that central government has some ownership, but they rely on integrators with um, local authorities to provide and yield that information accurately for them. Yeah. I imagine so, is that right? Would yeah, you say? absolutely. Yeah. Okay, then you've got medical data, so the Department of Health. Yeah. Right? So that's a slightly different beast in itself, isn't it? Right? And quite contentious and highly sensitive as well, I imagine, in the vast majority of cases. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a very, very personal to the person. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, part of this argument as well is, is the battle of convenience yeah. versus intrusion. And in many ways, would you accept a device that said that you were being sick and prevented long-term illness or prevented long-term sickness at, at the expense of, of, of losing your data from a personal environment? Is that, is that a trade-off you're happy to accept and people are? So yeah. that's a question that needs to be put out there. But when you look at this, actually, you can see that apart from business data and personal data, the government do have some type of footprint in every other type of data. They have some type of responsibility, whether that's through central government government or that's through local authorities to produce that thing yeah. and my question is how can we make it effective it's got to be through steady communication streams yeah. we have to be able to have open and frank conversations between departments through to central government through to the people and every single stakeholder that's involved through all of those levels to bring people together in an open communication path that's the only way that we're going to effectively share data and realise the kind of dream of what we're aiming for. Absolutely. You need an ambassador at that central government level, don't we? Absolutely. To kind of push that. And it's not an easy thing to, to do. But William, imagine that we were in a world where 
uh, we're able to use data effectively and mm. none of these barriers that we've just talked about exist. Yeah. Um, can you help me bring to life some of the possibilities of free-flowing access to data and how that will support uh, a genuine smart city? Sure. So I think we've established before, right? It's a united front. Right? Yeah. So we have to we have to embark on a united front, and I think that when we look at any so so when we look out into the world at examples of how smart cities are involved and how people are using technology, how governments are using technology to improve services, actually one of the problems inherent in this country is that the view in many places in China is let's build the infrastructure, then build the city. Yeah. Right? We'll privacy by design almost. We think of GDPR. Yeah. How are we setting up GDPR to categorise data? Yeah. Right? How do we classify data? That's a big part, right? And they're in a very fortunate position to be able to do that. Correct. Right? Literally from ground up. Yeah. Uh, solution, which is just not possible in the vast majority of uh, you know most cases in the Western world. Well, we were we were built in in, in England, you know, with horse and cart in mind. Yeah. That was our transport method, yeah, right? So, so we're, we're we're swimming against the tide over there. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult thing to do, right? So we need to look at this logically. I think that's the first thing. We can't replicate what somebody else has done, and we can't do a one size fits all model and just put, put paste on top somebody else's city on top of ours. That won't work. No, we have to understand our infrastructure and I think part of the challenge that the country faces and, and, and on a great opportunity as well from government is to build better relationships with commercial enterprises, business, general business within these areas because I think that can dictate in many ways the direction that we take because we're using local knowledge. Yeah. We're using knowledge that's being gained through actual operations and not theory because sometimes there's a perception versus reality argument of how public um, services are perceived how yeah. services in general that are operational in this country are perceived yeah. and the reality of what they're actually doing mm-hmm. and the workarounds that we have to do largely because the infrastructure doesn't necessarily support no, the future vision of what we're doing. I think when we think about 5G, I think maybe a good place to start with smart cities is the test beds. Yes. Right? Because that was what was pre-identified as something. So we looked at medical construction and mobility. Is that right? Was that did I get that right? Yeah, we um, our verticals are as well as a plug and play environment that anyone can come up to um, and test a product or services in a live five G environment. Um, our verticals are construction, mm-hmm. mobility, um, and we've got healthcare. What was the what was the thinking behind choosing those industries? They uh, it, it's to play towards the strengths of the local economies in you know the various parts of the West Midlands. So. It, we were, you know, we have a big automotive, automobile uh, sector in Coventry, yeah. so it's the play to that. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is a massive issue. We've got big university hospitals here in Birmingham, sure. and who are keen to understand how five G can be applied in a public sector health context. Mm. And then lots of construction in Black Country, um, lots of organisations based there, um, and that naturally lent itself to, to that particular vertical test bed. I think that's that's great, by the way. I, I think it makes complete sense. I think part of the public doubt, if you want to call it that, or scepticism around these things, is around the communication for them. So, yeah. you know, there's a perception that 5G is just about speed. Yeah. Right? And that's absolutely. been pushed through, and that's an erroneous view. Right? Yeah. It, we, we know, because we work in the industry, that actually it's about capacity and it's about linking systems in a way and creating relationships between different services and systems in a way that we never had before. But I think you have to look at what we're trying to achieve to really build a case 
for how smart cities will change lifestyle. And for sure, as, 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 a, as a real astounding statement here, they will change everything. This will become the model that is taken as an identicate around the world. It will be adapted, but this will become prolific. This will be the build. And what Birmingham's doing here in innovating is setting the scene for what is to come for the future. And that's very exciting for Absolutely. anyone in the Birmingham region. But I think, I thought about medicine and I thought, right, well, we're looking at medicine as a testbed. What's the, what's, what, what, what is the point of medicine, right? When we think about hospitals, when we think about what we provide for that, what's, what's the end reason? And I came to, it was to provide care. That was the reason for medical institutions, was to provide a level of care. When we're sick, when we're poorly, when we need an operation, when we've hurt ourselves. So... How can 5G more effectively enable medicine? And you start to think about the environment that it's been built in, a very reactive environment, right? You think about the huge spend that the NHS has, and we hear all the time about the strain on the NHS, the strain being placed. So how can 5G reduce that strain? And when we think about sensors built into beds, when we think about alert systems, when we think about taking in a full record of history, of medical history about the person, when we can take in the family um, genealogy as well, and we can understand inherent illnesses that goes within that genetic line, yeah. when we can understand the person better, and we can understand our services better, and we can alert ourselves earlier to potential problems before they arrive, we're being proactive. Yeah. And being proactive in an industry such as medicine mm. carries massive ramifications in Absolutely. terms of the general cost as well as the quality of the service that we're able to provide. Yeah. So for some people, the skeptics, they're seeing a faster internet speed. But what they're not seeing is the collection of lots of data, data which we've been collecting for decades. Yeah. We've just not known how to link it together. And that's the difference of 5G. And we talk about internet of things, right? And smart. Well, smart just means pre-built connectivity. That's what my definition of smart would be, pre-built connectivity. Yeah. So anything that connects into an internet environment. So if you can port data that you've inherited, if you've inherited data, and you can port that, and then you can cross that data with other data sets, what you start seeing is patterns. Yeah. And once you start to understand the patterns, you can then start to build a relevant service, which does more than what we've ever done before, because it's not based on theory, it's based on fact. No, that's great. And that's a, a really great example to bring to life. Thanks very much for doing that, because we all have interaction with healthcare uh, in some form of capacity. And actually bringing that to life for all of us is, you know, highly relevant. So thanks for cho choosing someone, something that was something that we all experience at some point, whether we like it or not. Unfortunately. Like. Unfortunately, <laughs> absolutely. In, in, from your expertise, especially with your knowledge of security, yeah. do you know, is it possible to cleanse data for exploitation? Or do you think people will have to sacrifice their privacy to get the real benefits of data exploitation. I know you don't like necessarily like the word exploitation, but this is I'm know. fine with the word exploitation. Okay. If anything, I think it's more appropriate yeah. because of what it is, yeah, right? Absolutely. I think I think this is a Pandora's box of a question. <laughs> so thank you. So thank you, thank you for smiling whilst you while you gently <laughs> pass this one over, right? So I thought if we're going to talk about privacy, first of all, let's actually let's actually define privacy. So I went on to the dictionary, which is okay. my favorite, favorite thing to my do. favorite thing to start starting point. Right? What is privacy? So 
my argument with this is that privacy is different things to different people through different generations, yeah. which I think is a massive thing. What it was to my granddad is different to what it yeah. is to my dad, is different to what it is to me, is different to somebody who's grown up with an iPad. Yeah. Right? And it's very contextual in a situation as well. Mm. You know, I would not want my medical information out there. No? But I would happy if, you know, people had access to, to my location, mm. if it made my trip easier. So, okay. you know, I think it's very contextual, notwithstanding age and demographics when you play into the concept of privacy. So, so there are steps that can be done, but I thought this was quite interesting, right? So the definitions, the quality or condition of being secluded from the presence or view of others. Yeah. Well, that's gone. Like, my, you, you say to me, you know, is privacy, is, do you think this is the death knell of privacy? And my answer would be, I think privacy died in 2013. Yeah. Just nobody heard about it and there yeah. was no memo sent out, right? But we started adopting a different way of living. We started sharing things willy-nilly and companies were not silly right they saw the benefit google is probably the most powerful company in the world they yeah. know what we're thinking right every time you put something in they know what you're thinking they could build if with the right level of technology a, a, a device a bit of ai that would know what you do it would know your moves it would counteract Checkmate, Amadeep. That would be it, right? They have the power, potentially, because yeah. they have the data. Maybe I need to change my default search engine. Right, DuckDuckGo, sure. right? So this is a really good point. So there's a search engine, free plug, DuckDuckGo, right? This is a search engine which has come about because they want to create a platform where it does not trace you at all, that has no cookies embedded, that does not pop up adverts for you, okay. that provides you a higher level of privacy because they think that there's a market for that, that there's a kickback. Yeah. And this is where this argument gets so interesting because it's convenience versus privacy. Absolutely. And what do you care more about? My argument would be for younger people, actually, they prefer more convenience yeah. over privacy. We're being groomed into convenience, right? Yeah. We're forgetting about privacy. We're forgetting about what it was, yeah. right? Because the other meanings of privacy are the state of being free from public attention or unsanctioned intrusion. Well, to an extent, yes, but also maybe not, right? Right? Because there's so many cases that we see through social media where things are alerted, right? You're alerted towards things. We're giving attention. We're giving attention sometimes without without having our authorization to do so. But yeah. we're put everywhere. If you put a Google search on yourself, it'll probably bring up a picture. Did you want that picture to be there? But do you have any well, some say? Of my pictures, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think privacy. But but we talk about security and privacy and it being inbuilt. And pseudonymization yeah. is a horrible word that was used throughout GDPR, right? And um, But what it means is the masking of some parts of the data to anonymize the individual. Yeah. And in that way, we can build through privacy by design, if we get it right at the infancy, and I state that, that that's so crucial and so important. Yeah. It's so important that we think this through before we start. That is the most important thing, because once we've built the infrastructure, it might be too big a beast to go back retrospectively yeah. and change, right? We have to build in privacy by design. And I think in order to build privacy, we have to ask the public what is acceptable to them, and we have to have 
clear and concise and frank conversations around the intentions of how we want to use the data, what that data will look like, how that might intrude on the person or how that could be anonymized. And we need to get backing and support because we're creating a rod for our back if we don't do that now. But if the question is, is there, are there things that we can do to cleanse data for exploitation? Yes, we can anonymize it. Is that probably what's going to happen in the long term? Well, that's subjective. I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical. I think that actually this gives power, so much control and so much power on unparalleled levels using technology to indicate things. And it's going to be a cultural shift to see what's acceptable and what's not. I think in many ways it's going to be a suck it and see. Yeah. But I think we have to be mindful of the privacy we have to be mindful that some people have a different definition that some people it matters more to than others and we need to understand ways of using data effectively which doesn't impeach on people and their individual lives or make them feel awkward that their information is being used for a purpose outside of what they believe it's being collected for and that's the thing isn't it i think going back to that earlier point it's all contextual we are willing to to give up data in certain circumstances for certain reasons, mm. but we wouldn't want it used for anything else. Yeah, yeah. And but we, we give it away so yeah, freely. Yeah, take exactly. it, take do we, it. Do we get that right? And that is the interesting point. Um, and just to, you know, the final point I want to discuss is, you know, in a, in a smart city world, is all data valuable? Or is there certain pieces of data that are, have a slightly more value to to organisations or creating a smart city culture. Definitely. There are tiers of data, right? So so we can identify, as we did earlier in the podcast, that actually there's lots of different types of data. And you already said that medical data means a lot to you, that that's the kind of data that you would prefer to be more personal and private. So in that sense, from from an individual aspect, yes, there are tiers, there are values to data, right? There's personal values that we apply to data. But from a city perspective, depending on what we're trying to achieve, what that output is, actually there's value in all data. Right? And the value in data is not necessarily the value that you see right away from looking at it, but it's the value of trussing that data with other different types of data. And that's something that I'm very keen on, and that's how I think this, this will really improve what we're trying to do. Right? If we're, if we're serious about making an impact on the citizens to make public spending more accountable, to make better quality of life, to make us live longer, to ensure the survival of the human race, that we're we're not destroying our environment, that we're actually counteracting that, then we need all data sources because we need to draw the patterns between things. Yeah. We need to understand, we've, we've understood the theory of things and we've debated that for centuries, but now we've actually have empirical data, we actually have meaningful data that we can use that will yield a true story and will tell us not just where we've come to and how we've got here, but where we're going. And this is what smart cities, that's what's so exciting for me about the concept of a smart city. It's combining so many different data sets to yield an answer and output and something that we can work to and hopefully something which is undeniable because I think that's really important. I think it's really important now that we can make statements with axiomatic certainty that state 
this is what we're doing and this is the impact we're having. And if we want to improve things, this is how we're going to do that. And I'm very hopeful in, in a grander sense that, you know, throughout all of the difficulties that this smart city build may bring, the eventual purpose of this is to ensure our survival, to create better standard of quality of everything, to reduce wastage, to improve services, to make you feel happier. Yeah, and, 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 and I think that, that carries great potential to do. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you as ever. Thank you so much for coming in, Sears. And um, look forward to, to hearing more in the future, no doubt. Thank you so much for My pleasure. Thank you. you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.